So we finished up 1 Timothy last week. We're going to continue into the pastoral epistles this week, and we'll start 2 Timothy, and I don't believe we'll get through chapter 1, but we're going to get as far as we can. So we have Paul writing again. He called himself the aged apostle. So you can imagine six years later than he was calling himself old, he's got to be really getting up there. Um, And you can see that through his writing. He knows that it's almost time for him to meet his end um, in whatever way uh, God chooses. But um, the imminence of his death is pretty heavily on his mind. Um, But in this epistle, we see some emotion come out from Paul that we don't see in other places. And we'll look at that in a little more detail later. But he starts off this second letter to Timothy by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. So he's telling Timothy who this letter is coming from. And, you know, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me that we sign our names at the bottom of the letter. So you read through the entire letter wondering, oh, I wonder who this is from. Oh, there he is. So Paul here, he's addressing Timothy with his name, telling him who is writing to him. Uh, right off the bat, which I think is smart. Maybe we should do that. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul in other epistles opens with a similar, in a similar way. Um, he does say here, by the will of God. And again, I've said this before, I'll say it again. This points back to the fact that he was specifically chosen by God as an apostle. Um, He was on the road to Damascus when a bright light came down, shone on him, and it blinded him. And God said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Um, And so it was not by uh, some devising of man. He didn't buy this position as an apostle but it was by the will of God directly. So I think I like that he he introduces himself in that way. He says, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, a beloved son. So now he addresses Timothy directly. He calls him a beloved son. Now, this certainly could mean that Paul was actually the man who led Timothy to faith in Christ. And that would make him a spiritual father of sorts. Um, And that is the interpretation that I took when we read through 1 Timothy. Now, in reading through 1 Timothy, I realized that there's another way that you could take that. Um, And it doesn't make any big difference at all. But I wanted to um, briefly explain that. So as you read through 1 Timothy, you'll come to uh, chapter 5. In verse 1, Paul tells Timothy, not to rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. So in this thinking, uh, you would have Paul as an older Christian to Timothy, which would kind of be his spiritual father. So you could take that sort of interpretation as well. Um, So having been the elder or the father, uh, Paul addresses Timothy as his son. Okay, both would kind of make sense. He says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, Paul opens other epistles with grace and peace be unto you. 
it's interesting that in all of the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, he opens with grace, mercy, and peace. So apparently when you're in ministry, you need more than just grace and peace, but you need a little mercy as well. Um, I, I did think that was interesting. Kind of funny. You definitely need mercy, that's for sure. Verse 3, he says, I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day. So we know that Paul longs to see Timothy and to exhort him face to face. Um, in his last letter to Timothy, he said, um, I'd like to be there and tell you these things in person, um, but since I'm not, I'll write to you, and that's a, a good alternative. But Paul was rather uncertain at this time in his life about what would kind of shake out down the road. Um, he did write this letter from a Roman prison. He was imprisoned, and it would not be long course, he didn't know this for certain, but it wouldn't be long until he was killed. And the second imprisonment was even harsher than the first. The first, he was chained to this Roman guard, the Praetorian guard, and he was allowed to kind of move about, um, restricted, but, you know, still allowed some freedoms. The second imprisonment was much more severe. Um, it was much more restrictive to him. But even while he was away, there's something that Paul knows that he can do for Timothy. Okay, Even not being there physically with Timothy, Paul can still offer prayers for Timothy. And he knows that that is going to be effectual for Timothy. How often do we say to someone, hey, I'll be praying for you? And how often does that really happen? I mean, I know for myself, I'll admit it. Sometimes I say, hey, I'll be praying for you. And I never actually do it. It just slips my mind. And it's it's nothing against that person. We just have trouble remembering it. But apparently, Timothy was so heavily put on Paul's mind that Paul never ceased to pray for him day and night. That's, that's an intense um, longing to see someone. That's an intense thing that has been put on Paul's heart to pray for Timothy. I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. He says, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. We see some great emotion from Paul in this verse. And it's a side that we don't really get to tap into in Romans. Uh, this great doctrinal statement that is the book of Romans. Um, he's very rigid. But here, he's, he's getting towards the end of his life, and he seems to understand that. This boy, Timothy, growing into a man by this point, he would have been about 36 to 40 years old when this was written. Uh, but they've shared quite an attachment over the years. And of course, there's been ups and downs in their ministry. But this would have been someone that Paul was writing to as a son, as a friend, as a brother in Christ. Um, and he didn't have to defend his apostleship to Timothy. We know, like in the book of Galatians, he wrote that 
he was an apostle by the will of God, uh, not by the devising of men. And that was more as a defense to his apostleship. Now he writes to Timothy, he says, by the will of God, but I think there is a different motive for writing that. Um, instead of defending his authority to Timothy, he wanted to remind him of his authority. See, Timothy would have viewed Paul as a sort of father figure. Um, and it's interesting to see Lois and Eunice, his mother and grandmother, mentioned to the exclusion of a father. I'm not sure if Timothy didn't um, have a father figure growing up or if he just wasn't a Christian, and so he's not mentioned here. But it is worth considering that Paul probably served as a sort of father figure to Timothy. So in calling him his son, Paul could have meant that quite literally. And we know that they, they definitely would have shared a, a common bond, a very strong bond with one another. So instead of defending his authority to Timothy, he reminds Timothy, yes, I'm, I'm your father in Jesus. I am that figure to you, but I'm also someone who needs to be taken seriously um, as an apostle. And so don't just look at me as your father, but look at me and hear what I have to say under this authority. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded as in you also. That genuine faith there is an unfeigned faith. It's a faith without hypocrisy. What is giving Paul joy? He tells us. It's remembering the genuine faith that Timothy has. And this genuine faith was passed down from these important women in his life. There is no overstating the impact that a mother can have on her children, on their spiritual growth, on their spiritual life. Especially, um, take heart, the single parents, the single mothers especially, because we see that Lois and Eunice were able to ingrain in Timothy that knowledge, that inkling to follow the Lord as he grew up. So that, that really does demonstrate the power of a mother to her children. And this is your first ministry. If you're a mother, your children should take precedence over almost everything. And that is where you need to be pouring a lot of your effort because your influence in their lives will guide them in one direction or another. This faith without hypocrisy can speak volumes. If, you, if your kids hear you talk about Jesus and then you live a different way, if you go on to start yelling out of anger at your husband or at your wife, that is hypocrisy because you speak the name of Jesus. You say, we can keep this anger issue under control with Jesus, and then you let it fly off the handle. That is not faith without hypocrisy. That is a confusing picture to your kids. They can't understand that what you're saying is not what you're doing. 
So those things need to match up. What kind of faith are you demonstrating? Is it a faith without hypocrisy, an unfeigned faith, or something that's muddled with the world? He says, therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. That therefore is therefore a reason. So in light of the things he previously said of the genuine faith, he reminds Timothy to stir up the gift of God, which is in him through the laying on of his hands. Every believer has the gift of God in them. That is the Holy Spirit. When you are born again, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and that is the gift of God. He's also given you certain abilities we can call spiritual gifts, and every Christian has these abilities to different degrees, and he anoints certain people with certain gifts to carry out his work. This stir up is a really interesting little phrase for us. And it's actually one word in the Greek that's been translated to stir up in our English language, but it simply means to stoke the fire. And there's a specific denotation of fire in the Greek word, to inflame one's mind. We just sung about stoking the fire. Lord, light the fire again. That was unplanned on my part. I don't know if Beth saw this and picked that song, but it's very aptly done. It is wonderful when a Christian who is saying, I'm having a desert experience, um, I, I just feel so far from God, when that person can reignite that fire. And of course, we have to call on the Lord for that. But when you build a fire and you let it burn down a little bit, you'll get these coals, the embers that are just simmering. And those are still effective at starting another fire. They're not a fire themselves. They're hot. But when you add a few twigs on them, maybe some leaves to get the fire going, you put fuel on it, you blow onto the fire, onto the embers, and those leaves and those twigs catch fire again. They're engulfed by the flames. That's what Paul is wanting Timothy to do. He's wanting him to add a little fuel, add a little oxygen to that fire, let it come back alive. Uh, you got to agitate it a little bit and add those things to it, and it will catch fire again. You know, when we hear from Christians these same things, oh, I feel so far from God. Um, I'm just not hearing from him right now. Um, I feel so dry in my walk, or I'm having a desert experience. What is it that you need to do? Well, first, check to make sure that you are in God's word. You can't have a seven-day relationship and read your Bible one day a week. It doesn't work out like that. So number one, be in the word of God. If you are not reading it, you can't speak to your heart through it. That is, that's the first thing. Are you in prayer? So with the reading of God's word, you need to be asking him, to speak to you through it. And that is a very basic thing in the Christian's life, but it's so often neglected. Um, and I'm not up here preaching to you. I'm preaching to myself. Okay, If I'm feeling far from God, check my heart. 
check how I spend my day. If I'm not spending my day with the Word of God and in communion with God, then I can't really complain about feeling far from Him, can I? So these are important things for us. Uh, The kindling, the leaves and twigs, that's reading your Bible. Throw that on there. Uh, Stoke it with the wind, the spirit, uh, in prayer. And those embers will catch fire once again. Stir up the gift of God, which is in you, through the laying on of my hands. When he says, uh, through the laying on of my hands, this can really just be speaking about timing. And Paul apparently was there when Timothy received the Holy Spirit. Um, So that's what he means. It's not literally by the laying on of Paul's hands that Timothy received the Holy Spirit. Um, Paul was kind of a addition to this process that was already happening in Timothy's life. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Fear can no doubt keep us from sharing the gospel, from sharing your faith. It's kept me from it before, and I'm sure that every one of you have had a similar experience. But we do have to understand that that fear that we feel is not of God. Uh, That is not given to us by God. God is not going to make you afraid to share his gospel. He empowers you for it. Now, it may seem very obvious, but it was kind of a light bulb that went off in my mind when I really realized this. But Satan is not going to put the urge in you to share the gospel with someone. He's just not going to. That is antithetical to his plan. But only God will put that on your heart to share the gospel with someone else. So if you are feeling that twinge, to share your faith, don't ignore it. And God will empower you for that work. Now, he says, uh, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. God has given us the spirit of love, agape, a self-sacrificial love. And if we actually love men like Jesus does, we would be evangelizing at every turn. You don't know Jesus? Let me tell you something. Man, he loves you. He is there for you, and he is the only way to eternal life, to the Father. That would just be on repeat all day when you're interacting with strangers. Um, If you saw those people, how Jesus sees those people, you could not help yourself but to tell them. Um, And truly... I think that is mostly why we struggle with it, because we cannot love like Jesus. And of course, we we get closer and closer to that mark. But as a man, I can't do what Jesus did. Um, this spirit of love, if we have it, of course, you know we're going to evangelize people. Are you all familiar with Penn Gillette of Penn and Teller? We know that he's a pronounced atheist. Um, He is very strong in his beliefs. Um, And he had a quote that fascinated me and kind of woke me up. Okay, and this is what he said. Pendulette said, I've always said 
I don't respect people who don't proselytize, which is, you know, evangelize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? If I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point I tackle you. And this is more important than that. That's pretty sobering. How much do you have to hate someone to not tell them that there is this eternal life that's possible? And again, I'm preaching to myself here. He's given us also a spirit of a sound mind. The sound mind is an admonishing or calling to soundness of mind. It is moderation or self-control. He continues in verse 8. He says, therefore, speaking of what he has already said, in light of this spirit of power, love, and a sound mind, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. We have to be bold in this. And Paul also mentions, don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. Now, this is an interesting mindset. I think it's worth studying a little bit. Paul was never a prisoner of Rome. Of course, he was held captive in a Roman prison. That doesn't mean that he was a prisoner of Rome. You see, in Paul's mind, he was a prisoner of Jesus Christ. From the moment that he gave his life over to Christ, he was Christ's prisoner. And it didn't matter where his physical body was, but his mind was set on Christ. It was set on the prize. So in his mind, he was never a prisoner of Rome. He wasn't even chained to a praetorian guard. He was chained to somebody that needed to know Jesus. Can you imagine that guard being chained to Paul with that mindset? That's crazy. But this is a powerful, powerful mindset. Um, If we think like this, how can we possibly be brought down? I mean, honestly, if I can't be taken prisoner by the government, if they can't lock me up in a prison because I'm already sold out to Jesus, that's a powerful position to be in. He says in verse 8, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. How much do we really share in the sufferings of Christ? Maybe we get made fun of at school for our beliefs. Maybe somebody doesn't accept what we believe and we feel ashamed for it. Yeah, those are sufferings. 
And that can hurt in the moment. It can. But there are Christians all around the world today who are being killed for what they believe. And that truly is sharing in the sufferings. And I don't know whether I am in that place or not. I don't think that any of us know until we're faced with a decision like that. Are you a follower of Christ? If you are, you're being shot right now. If you say that you're not, then I'll shoot you in the leg and I'll move on. I don't think we really know what we would do in that situation until we're faced with it. And hopefully none of us are. Share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Now, it's so encouraging to me that he does not say, in the power of me, according to the power of Paul. It's according to the power of God, because that is the only way that anyone could possibly share in this type of suffering. And that is encouraging to me, because I don't have to bear it myself. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Wow, there's a lot there. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Now this type of holy calling is not a separation from something, but a separation to Jesus. And of course, There are things that you will be separated from when you choose to follow Jesus. Those old lusts of the flesh, those things that you chased after before you were saved, you're no longer chasing after those. So yes, you are separated from those. But it's because you were separated to Christ. That is the kind of holy calling. You're being called to Christ, not according to our works. Okay, everybody take a deep breath with me not according to our works. And we don't have to strive for this. It's not something that you can work for. Now, true faith, of course, is accompanied with works. But the works come out of a genuine faith in Christ. Called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. According to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us, in Christ Jesus, before time began. Do you understand that? I don't understand that, not fully. And there are a lot of things that I don't understand. I don't understand exactly how this computer works. I know it has something to do with electricity, and there's a screen that I can read. That's about my knowledge of computers. But I still enjoy it. I enjoy being able to use it. I enjoy how it makes my life easier. You know, I can pull up about any information that I need to know on this little device here. So I don't know how God separated me from before time began. I don't know anything about that, really. Um, I don't know how in Revelation the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. I don't know how in Ephesians 1.4 that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. But I recognize that that's true, and I enjoy it. I don't have to understand it to enjoy it. Verse 10, 
but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Has now been revealed. The narrative that was once shrouded in mystery to the Jews, to the patriarchs, to all those before Christ has been revealed to us. And we are so lucky for that. And I am so thankful for that. Um, We get to look back on history and see Jesus stepping in, doing what he did on the cross, raising from the dead, abolishing death, taking away the power that it has. And now that is revealed to us. How lucky we are. That is our holy calling. That holy calling is now fully known to us. And we're here to enjoy it. In Ephesians 3, 4, and 5, Paul alludes to the same idea. He says, By which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. They didn't know what exactly was going to happen. And they had all these prophecies in Psalm, um, in all of the Old Testament. They had the prophecies that very clearly, we can see them clearly, point to Jesus. But there was still a mystery about it. But now it has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You know, death really is foreign to us, just as humans. We were not created to have a file for death. You have a a loved one die, and you mourn, and it takes a while to, to get over that. But even when you think you're over it, there's really just nothing that you can do to to make that feeling completely subside. You can't file it somewhere. It's just kind of there. Um, if Adam had not have sinned, we would not have known death. Death was introduced at the fall of man. Um, and so that tells me that God literally created us to be with him forever. And that is the objective that all of this comes back to. God is bringing us back in as children to an everlasting kingdom. That is why he sent Jesus to redeem his creation, us, to bring us back to him. And Jesus brought this life and immortality to light through the gospel. That is how the deathlessness that we talked about previously is accomplished. And how wonderful is it, though, that death is not the end for us? Yes, we have to experience the death of a loved one. If they're a Christian, that's just opening a door to their real life. This is just kind of a prelude to what we get to experience with Christ in heaven. 
And that is what we are looking forward to. Death is just a door to that. And that is a glorious thing for us. Our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. So first, he was appointed a preacher. That's a herald or a messenger. An apostle with certain authority and a teacher of the Gentiles. We know that Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. He was specifically sent to the Gentile world to evangelize. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. For this reason, I also suffer these things. What reason is he talking about? We just talked about it. Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This is the reason that he suffers these things. Because he's looking forward to something that's not on earth. He's looking forward to, um, quoting the last sentence I read there, that day. Verse 12. He's looking forward to the day when God will wipe away the tears from his eyes. He's looking forward to something. And this is the hope that a Christian has. We don't have to live in this world forever. And I thank God for that. But there's something much better up ahead. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. Isn't that cool? Whom I have believed, not what I have believed. He has placed his faith in the man Christ Jesus. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. What have you committed to him? Are you persuaded that he can keep that until, quote unquote, that day? Are you fully persuaded that he can keep that? This word for committed is a banking term that was used for something that's been put on deposit. So you're committing something for safekeeping. Are you committing your life to Christ for safekeeping? Are you persuaded that he's going to safeguard your life until that day when you're glorified, you're caught up with him in the air, or you're taken home? Are you persuaded? Now, I think we can all grow in this area, myself included. So let's close in a word of prayer, and we'll ask God to help us with this.